0: All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode. Don, we have another guest that has agreed to come back. And you know what? I was just looking. Last year, Lisa Olson, who's our Vice President of North American Lab and Global Analytical Services, she was just a director of analytical services when we hired her. (laughs) And in less than a year, she's our Vice President now, and she's a complete delight.
1: Yep. Yep. It's good to have her back again. And like I said, we're able to con people to come back and join us. So that's a good sign for us. Gives us some confidence that we're doing something right, I guess. Something right. (laughs) (laughs) To the point that people want to join us again. But then again, nobody would ever know if somebody said no to us again because... Well, I'm not telling. I'm not telling either. But it's never (laughs) happened. I'll tell everybody that.
0: So we have a great episode today, I think. And some of you may or may not be super interested in this, but the FDA has started a pilot program for accrediting laboratories. And there's been lots of questions and confusion. So we thought it was definitely podcast worthy. So today, Lisa joins us to discuss the ASCA program from the FDA. So just a little bit about Lisa. She leads our North American Laboratory and Global Analytical Services programs as our vice president of North American Lab and Global Analytical Services has lots of experience in medical device testing and strategic leadership and regulatory, and just a great wealth of knowledge. And is part of our task force internally that is working to make NAMSA ASCA ready, so that once we're ready to be accredited, we can be. And I think this is a really good episode, Don.
1: Yeah. I think so. And even though we're talking about the ASCA pilot program, I mean, certainly we're going to to talk about biocompatibility, obviously, as well. So, you know, exactly, kind of of connecting the two together (laughs) and how biocompatibility relates to this, how it's covered by this, what it means, what it doesn't mean. From an FDA perspective, obviously, this is FDA specific. But yeah, I think it's a lot of good information out there on something a little bit different than what we typically talk about in terms of a lot of methods about biocompatibility and evaluation. This is kind of a little bit different spin on things from a different perspective, but still biocomp based. For sure.
0: And so we're going to go over what the program is, a little bit about the timing and a little bit about how it affects manufacturers. So we hope you all enjoy this episode and we'll catch you next time.
2: Welcome to Biocompatibility. The first ever podcast focused on the biocompatibility of medical devices. NAMSA is happy to bring biocompatibility to you, where each episode features leading industry experts and their discussions on biocompatibility challenges. Be sure to visit www.namsa.com for more information and to access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Welcome everyone to
0: another episode of Biocompatibility. We are entering discussion today on the fun topic of future laboratory accreditation program. So I don't know how exciting today is, but I think it's super informative. And I think it's really important for what's going on in the industry or what's going to happen, especially when it comes to the U.S. FDA. So we have Lisa Olson joining us again. Lisa, thanks for joining. Glad to be with you guys. We can make the topic fun. I'm positive. I'm sure we can probably make about anything fun.
1: <laughs> I've admittedly already compared it to watching paint dry. So he
0: has. <laughs> <laughs> he has. I'm sure we've already offended all the quality people out there by calling yes. it. <laughs>
1: That was a statement made by me, a guy who finds ISO 10993 part one interesting. So take that with a grain of salt, right? So just depends on what trips your trigger, I guess. Anyways.
0: I guess. So what we're talking about today is a new, and I'm guessing they're calling it a is it a guidance document they're calling it? So the US FDA has issued a pilot program, a series of documents for the accreditation scheme for conformity assessment commonly called ASCA. At least that's how I'm pronouncing it. I don't know how the FDA is pronouncing it. Maybe it's ASCA. I don't know. (laughs) But So what this is, is for the first time in the medical device regulation history in the U.S., FDA is going to accredit laboratories. That's a really interesting nuance. But they, yeah. they
2: finally started to do that. We've seen that in other places in the world, but that the FDA is finally trying, I will underline the trying to accredit laboratories so they can take less responsibility for all
0: the time. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. So there's a couple of reasons that they're doing it. And one is to certainly help their burden, the way I understand it. So I'm going to read a little bit here. We did a blog when the draft of the pilot came out about a year ago. And NAMSA has actually been very involved since I think around May of 2017, maybe even a little before that. We had some mutual training events that we were doing with the FDA, and we were asked to comment on some things. Then there was an event they did in D.C. where they had a panel where they discussed the program. So it's been floating around out there for three years now. And final comments were due on the draft last year, right around Christmas time, because I remember we were all frantic trying to get our comments in before the holiday. And then September 25th, they came out with the actual documents to implement the pilot program for laboratories, which I think we've been waiting for and we're excited for. To some extent, I guess I'll use the word excited depending on who you're talking to. I'm excited as a marketer, right? I think the laboratory knows that there's a lot of things in here that we need to look at, address, implement. So that's kind of the history of ASCA. And they did say, I'm trying to find the document here, initiated as part of the enactment of the Medical Device User Fee 96 Amendment of 2017. And one of the things that it'll do for the FDA is reduce kind of a burden, like you mentioned, Lisa, on review of biocompatibility testing. So it's specific to biocompatibility testing.
2: I think you make a great point talking about the biocompatibility testing and if you relate it into the burden. Many times, testing is pretty simple. And the FDA reviewers then were continually looking through the same information and spending time trying to get clarification on minor points, because we all have to remember, that's the responsibility to create the story of what the data pocket's saying. And if things were inconsistently reported by different laboratories or manufacturers, they would have to, even the most simple thing, they have the responsibility to go ask questions. And if you can imagine Them having to ask the same type of question on a basic cytotox assay, for example, how much extra work that created because they can't just assume, oh, it was done correctly. I think this is where one of the ways that this program can really help the device industry.
0: I agree. I think, Don, were you going to, Don, wake up? I mean, just from the standpoint of
1: cytotoxicity, I mean, just looking at the guidance document from the FDA's biocompatibility. We'll say they kind of pick the initial studies, the low-hanging fruit, more simple studies to tackle up front so we can get our feet wet, understand what's going on. And so, yeah, obviously, if they have a nice summary document that's against a certified laboratory for something like cytotox, ASTM hemolysis, those types of things, they certainly won't, I guess, have to in all cases, maybe in some, but not in all, review the complete testing report anymore. But just yeah. look at the summary document that's, what is it, the DOC that comes in for the study instead of the actual testing report. Now, it appears that there's any deviations to the study for any given reason. And I wouldn't say deviations from a GLP standpoint, deviations from an ASCA standpoint. Then the complete report might still have to be submitted, reviewed, so on and so forth. So, okay. yeah, there's going to be exceptions to the, well, say, the attempt of the rule right now as it's being drafted, it appears.
0: Yeah, so I think that's one of the keys that ideally they're hoping for is using some of these more common, obviously somewhat standardized tests, giving industry some guidelines as to a laboratory's performance, what you have to meet in order to be accredited, and then ultimately reduce the paper and the time upon review when you think of the hundreds of Thousands, I think, 3,510Ks about a year that are submitted. You figure at least 50% of those have some sort of bio comp testing with them. You're talking about a lot of review time. So I think I want to go through our understanding of how the program is going to be implemented. So FDA is not going to be doing the accrediting themselves. They are asking for accrediting bodies that already exist. So if a laboratory has ISO 17025 for example, that's accredited by an individual accrediting body. There's different companies that do it. So the FDA has asked these organizations to submit to be considered as an accrediting body for the ASK program. So that's kind of step one, the way I understand it. And then once they get accredited, which I think we're looking at 60 days from their submission to the FDA, which can start Almost immediately, they can start submitting to be considered. They have a good 60-day consideration time where they'll be notified wherein they can start doing audits for the ASK program. Did I get that right, y'all?
2: Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. The interesting thing is what happens to those accrediting bodies that maybe were slow and didn't apply by November 25th.
0: Right, right. Yeah, so if you want in the game, get in the game. The FDA is certainly, I don't think they're paying them. I haven't seen anything about that. I'm not sure how money is being exchanged here, but I'm guessing there'll be a cost to the laboratories for the audit from these accrediting bodies. So once they get their accreditation or their approval that they could be an accrediting body, then they can start auditing laboratories, which the next step, I believe, is as a laboratory, you get an acceptable audit. You get the audit report from the accrediting body that says... Yep, you have met all of the things outlined. And then as a laboratory, you submit your application to the FDA with your audit, and they have another 60 days to review, I'll call it our application if I'm speaking from names of terms. So timeline-wise, we're looking at several months. I've already received lots of emails, so I'm putting this out there right away. Timeline, we're looking at several months before, like we can't flip, flip a switch and be asking tomorrow. If we could, we would, right? But laboratories are looking at several months from now before this is actually something that will be in place. We'll be able to offer this ASCA
1: testing. And I guess one thing I don't know. Oh, I Oh, I was just wondering, I guess, a question for Lisa. In terms of the ASCA review certification, I'm not sure of the technical name for it, but once a laboratory gets approved, is it... On a per test basis, or is it on a an overall laboratory basis or a combination of the two, kind of like making sure that your quality system in the background is good, but then likewise, the specific test method, if you will, is good as well, so could you be certified for one of the nine tests, and that's it? I'm not sure how that works
2: yeah, you know that's a real interesting point, and I have to freak through it a couple of times so. There's the founding basis that you've got a robust quality system, and that's the whole basis of the 17.025 is you've got underlying quality system that is really robust. But then the ASCA program allows or requires, however you want to look at it, you to get yourself a lab to get accredited to specific tests. So NASA could choose only to get accredited to featherpox. It'd be a little foolish given that we've got all the studies If a lab were smaller or if a manufacturer wanted to have their internal lab get ASCA, and there's reasons why they might want to, you can pick and choose. You don't have to do everything, but you can do everything.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that yet because there certainly are laboratories out there that don't do all of these studies in-house. We do. SNAMSA, we're looking at it from an all-or-nothing kind of perspective, I think. But if you only do in vitro assays, in-house, for example, you don't have a vivarium. you might only get the cytohemolysis complement. I think those are the three. Ames, was Ames in, in there? Nah, nah. Nope, no, no. Nope, no Ames. No, Geno no genotox. genotox at all, which is interesting. You put complement in there, but no genotox. I don't understand that one. <laughs> But anybody that's done complement will understand our giggling or my giggling anyway. So yeah, I guess if you only do in vitro assays, that would be an option that you get Accredited for those particular ones. Like I said, we're certainly looking at it as a holistic approach.
1: That's our goal. I guess my thought, what I was thinking about as Lisa and you were talking about timelines and such. So, like this accreditation process, is it a two step process then? Do you get your like 17025 quality system reviewed by the accrediting body? But then at the same time, do you get a test method reviewed or is it just, like I say, is it a multi-step process or don't you have to worry about the test method by the accrediting body? It's just the facility that is worried about in terms of the accrediting body.
2: So my on who you already have to be a 17.025 accredited lab. That's just kind of the ante-end to the game. And then when you go for your audit to be ASCA, they will look at both your quality system and your tests at the same time. So that's all done at once, but you have to get that done. And then the second step, because it, I mean, to your point about it being two steps, the second step really becomes getting the FDA to agree. So you have to then apply to the FDA after you get your report back, your ASCA accrediting body.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting. There's some things in the document that are certainly above and beyond what 17.025 asks for, such as the amount of training that you have to have for technicians performing the assays, for study directors performing the assays. They're looking at both length of service as well as number of tests that you have led or performed. And so it's not a simple switch and I think smaller laboratories will certainly struggle with some of those training requirements. I know it was one of the things that we made lots of comments on the draft document because we have, of course, our own training that allows us to show that people are qualified to do their jobs. And this was definitely some more specific things that we're going to have to modify our training records to indicate as such. So if a study director is signing off on a program that is under the ASK accreditation, that they meet all of the requirements of the training. It's very interesting. I'm really happy I'm not a quality person or a a training person in operations because I do think there's going to be some challenges for everyone, for sure. Talking
2: about the training, the intent there is plastic where basically they're saying you have to have qualified people. Stop running these tests with people who don't know what they're doing. From your viewpoint, Because you've reviewed a lot of data from a lot of different places. Have you seen inconsistencies in the quality of the interpretations and whatnot? Do you think that this extra training requirement will help?
1: I don't know if it would be evident in like a report as you're looking at it, that the people in the background were more or less trained when they did the study, whether it be because there's the expectations for the study director that they define, and then there's the expectations for the technicians all the way down. I guess to some degree, I might be less concerned actually in this scenario about the study director, unless there's inconsistencies across the board in interpretation and control of studies. But I mean, if a laboratory is doing a good job with GLPs, you would hope that there's a regulation that takes care of that aspect pretty well. But then, I mean, from a technician standpoint, something for cytotoxicity, maybe there's this looming thought in the background, especially on qualitative scoring schemes whether laboratories are being consistent in grading a one versus a two versus a three versus a four for in vitro cyto. Likewise, when it comes to the in vivo studies, are there observations of redness and swelling? Is it consistent and does training play into that? Maybe it's just a, a matter of gaining confidence that all these laboratories have in the background, proper training, as well as screening practice that you have to go through in order to actually score a GLP study that's going to be submitted to a regulator in support of the safety of a device. So, I don't know how much that would trickle through all the way to the report to where you would say, Uh upon comparison, this lab does a good job at training, this one doesn't, unless you actually had some requirements put in place that would maybe try to standardize that concept. Because I can imagine with All the labs out there that do in vitro cytotox, especially elution methods, I could imagine there's a just huge variety in how they say this technician can look through a microscope and accurately determine whether or not they feel there's 20% cell lysis in the plate they're looking at. I could certainly see the benefit maybe in trying to normalize that across the industry. I just don't know how much you would actually see it in data that you're looking at. Now, I will say this. Just looking at a lot of companies' reports when we do assessments and that sort of thing, there have been times when I've looked at the results and say, huh, that's interesting. (laughs) 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 And you wonder, it's like, really? Harp launch, you always get scores for one for sesame oil extraction and vivo studies. Just Every time, every site, every place, everywhere. And if you look at the template for intracutaneous, it's already pre-populated with ones for the control scores for vegetable oil, <laughs> which It's kind of interesting. But yeah, I think there are some things that kind of hint towards maybe inconsistencies and in what's going on for even some of these simple studies. Because let's be honest, most of these studies that are selected, I think the nine of them that are selected, pretty basic studies that have been around forever. We routinely do gap assessments on methods. I'm doing one now that stretches back to 1992 in vitro (laughs) cytotoxicity. Don't ask me why, but it is. (laughs) And you find gaps, but these methods, I mean, they've minimally changed over the years. But it does beg the question, what's going into the training of the individuals that have been doing them for years? So I think there could be some benefits, certainly, for the training aspect. It is the thing that made me cringe the most when I read that document. Because I was just thinking of it from a tracking nightmare. But
0: anyway. <laughs> 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 yep. <laughs> we just had a meeting yesterday talking about this. So I do want to make a little announcement here. So listeners, if you have not had a chance to see the ASCA document or want some more information, we have a blog post on our website. And also we'll link to, we have links to the, to the ASCA documents that the FDA released. You can go to www.namsa.com backslash ASCA, A-S-C-A, and that will get you right to that blog post where you can read more. If you're tired of listening to us and you just want to go read it, you can do that now. We'll see you later. Or you can stay here with us and we'll talk some more, but that's also available. So you can go directly to that page and get a quick link for the program. So one thing I wanted to talk about, we mentioned the tests. and I'm sitting here writing down the list and I don't believe that I have them all. So it's toxicity. Sensitization, irritation, and I guess it's both irritate. So is it skin, kind of skin, pe- intercutaneous. skin irritation, and intracutaneous with sensitization also close patch and maximization? Yes. 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 Okay. So then hemolysis and complement and pyrogen, right? Pyrogenicity. Yep. Yep. And that's kind of where we stop, right? Or was acute systemic in there?
1: Oh yeah, acute was in there too.
0: Okay. So acute systemic. So it's kind of like the top five most common, cytosensitization, irritation, acute systemic, and pyrogen. And then they threw in hemolysis and complement for those blood contacting devices. So I think an interesting point here is that if you're a short-term skin contact device, ASCA programs will be great for you. You're going to be able to get all of the testing you need with an ASCA program and not have to submit all your big old long test reports and that sort of thing. But if you go on and you're an implant or you're a blood contacting device for a longer period of time, there are other things that could be outside of the scope of ASCA for sure. Muscle implants are the first one that come to mind, right? So I guess there was... Lots of discussion around how they don't believe there's enough, I don't know, I don't want to call normalcy, (laughs) steady programs out there around muscle implants that they don't want to see them. They want to see those. And then, of course, the longer subchronic or chronic that may or may not be needed actual testing wise, depending on the materials and the initial assessment that's done of risk. So short-term programs, great. If I'm a, I don't know, blood pressure cuff manufacturer, I'm looking forward to ASCA because that's really going to give me everything I need and I'm going to have a smaller packet to submit to the FDA. Ideally, get faster review. If I'm a hip implant, it's going to be useful for five, but then there's going to be things outside of ASCA that you're still going to need those reports. You're still going to need to go through probably some of that discussion with the FDA. You guys agree with that? Yeah,
1: yeah. Except the short-term contact. If you're short-term contact with blood contact, you're going to be missing one thing, and that's in vivo thrombo-resistance evaluation. It's noted for reasons that we could all
2: probably imagine why. why.
0: (laughs) And if you don't know why, go back a few episodes and listen to our episode on part four, the second most misunderstood standard of (laughs) TISON-93. Now, keep in mind, too, you mentioned all
1: those studies also covered as part 12.
0: True. That's a great point. What's part 12, Don?
1: Your favorite? uh, It's got something to do with extraction or something like that. (laughs) Just kidding. Yeah, sample preparation. Extraction primarily is what we're talking about. So, I mean, extraction for most of the studies that you just mentioned, sample preparation feeds into pretty much all of them. So, yeah, you pretty much have to have it in there or you're missing part of your method. Good point. And if you look at the, I mentioned earlier, the deviations, again, not from a GLP sense, but deviations to like, Study that might come up. One of the things that pushes you into needing to submit full reports, even if you have an ASCA certified accredited method, is the extraction outcome. And for anybody that's dealt with extraction, and I'll say particularly the FDA and a lot of interaction between extraction observations, the whole list of observations that they look for are sitting in there as quote unquote things that are. I think, described as deviations or something like that to where you might have to submit the full report. So if you have a particulate in your saline extract of your intracutaneous study that might be reason for needing the full report. There's things like that that kind of, they're in the test, but they're not in the standard for the test necessarily.
0: It's in part 12. Yeah, that's a great point. And there's also lots of premium requirements for those people that do that sample prep too which I know, Don, you managed VPU for years. You were a study director and also managed VPU for years. So I'm guessing that caused you to cringe a little bit as well.
1: Yeah, because I think the requirement for part 12 was that you had to have a bachelor's degree. So you yep. have to have a bachelor's degree to use a ruler and cut stuff up. So uh, <laughs> it's more well, than that. Are, I'm just kidding. You
0: also might have to weigh things. So don't simplify it.
1: No, no, I mean, it's, it's a really, horrible
0: job. I wouldn't want it. But anyway.
1: it, it, it is. It's incredibly when you take it all the way <laughs> down to the level that they took. It's, it's complex. So there's definitely more to it than using a ruler and cutting stuff up. I'm not you so be,
0: good with a ruler, Lisa. So that's, that's why. Is <laughs> the metric
1: system got you confused? Very. It's
0: got me so confused. <laughs>
1: But no, yeah. yeah, there are requirements for that in addition to the requirements for the technicians that would be doing the other types of testing. So, yep. granted, I'm sure it can be handled in different ways. I mean, at NAMSA, that lab is a lab of its own. I mean, it's set aside from the laboratories that actually do the testing just because of the sure volume, the workload, and to ensure consistency across all laboratories that your sample getting prepared correctly for multiple studies. So there's logic behind that. But yeah, there's definitely some training requirements that might certainly make some cringe in the area of biopreparation unit, BPU, whatever laboratories call it, but the place that does all the preparation.
0: All right. So I'm going to give some dates here. I've pulled up the website. So we're recording this just a few days before the FDA's webinar. So they Hosted, I'm going to use past tense in the future. They hosted a webinar on October 22nd. So we're not talking about that because we're not there yet in real life for recording. But there's an open webinar on the 22nd for all stakeholders to attend. So I'm guessing there'll be a lot of good information come out of that as well. Then the accrediting body applications have to be in by November 4th. And FDA will release the list of those approved by November 25th. So Ideally, by November 25th, the laboratory will know who they can contact to get audited or reviewed for the ASCA recognition. There's also going to be training for those accrediting bodies. So the end of this month, October 29th and 30th, which could be today, actually, because I think that's the day we're releasing this episode. And then November 2nd and 3rd, they're going to have accrediting bodies training. So that's specific training, online training for those companies that want to be Approved to accredit laboratories. And then testing laboratory applications. So, after the FDA issues the initial list of ASCA accrediting bodies, so then when it's available, we can go out and find somebody, which we already have an accrediting body we use for 17025, and ideally we'll be able to contact them and get our audit scheduled. FDA then will issue an initial list of ASCA accredited laboratories once they start to have some, right? And then they'll update it throughout the pilot as additional laboratories receive accreditation. So our goal is to be number one on that list. It's no, no hidden secret out there. That will be NAMSA's goal. And as laboratories get added, that list will get updated. So we also have question and answer sessions for testing laboratories. So as a manufacturer, you may or may not want to listen to these. It might be informative and educational for you to help understand. So on November 16th, they'll be at laboratory question and answer on the basic safety and essential performance scope. And then November 23rd, there'll be a specific session on the biocompatibility scope of the accreditation. So they have a lot of education scheduled for us that everybody can see free of charge and to learn more. The last thing I want to cover, unless I've missed anything, is Really, what does this mean to our manufacturers? What does this mean to our listeners? Probably most of them aren't laboratories, but if I'm a device manufacturer, what does this mean to me? How am I affected? What should be my next steps besides emailing me every day and asking me when it's going to happen?
2: <laughs> you know, I think there's a couple of things that the device manufacturers themselves need to think about. This is a voluntary program, it's pretty correct. Right. Voluntary, voluntary, voluntary. However, I think that the agency is going to lean on it pretty heavily, and the manufacturers are going to really want to think about who they're working with. Even if they're not necessarily going to gain a lot of benefit from the ASCA program, if they've got one of the excluded devices, I think the agency is still going to be looking at that as they review data. And it's not a free pass. The agency will likely approve, will likely accept, which they have to do, right? But I think it helps. It's an easier button, not an easy button. And manufacturers really need to think about them. Do they go with labs that have no exposure to this program? Simply because I think the agency is going to use that in the
0: background in how they're looking at data, no matter what it is. Correct. Yeah, that's a great point. Don, what do you think? Anything else that, from a manufacturer's perspective, besides them having a smaller stack, it's not stacks of paper anymore, it's a smaller electronic file that they're submitting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> how else will this affect you know, them or anything else they should consider?
1: Aside from what Lisa's already stated, I'm not sure, from a manufacturer's perspective, any other things that they would have to necessarily think about in terms of how it may or may not impact what they do. Right. Yeah. Conceptually, could it impact like the speed of the review or something like that? Certainly, that might be the case. I don't know how long it actually takes for an FDA reviewer to look at the big three, quite honestly, from a report point of view. But yeah, if it gives them greater confidence in the data that they're looking at, either officially or unofficially, then I think kind of Delisa's point, maybe that will speed things along from the FDA's perspective. Yeah. Yeah, there's probably some other things in my mind, but I won't mention them now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We can always edit you. (laughs) So I guess this is my commercial hat that I've put on. Obviously, I think if I'm a manufacturer, I certainly want to know where my laboratory sits with this. Also, I think we failed to mention that any laboratories that have open non-conformances or sightings from the FDA will not be able to qualify for this program. So there could be some situations there that I want to find out about with the laboratory that I'm working with, if they're planning on participating and or if they have anything open that might prohibit them from participating. And also, I think once I choose an ask a laboratory, once I want to go with them, I think I want to make sure that I mention it when I'm Working with my laboratory to get a proposal. I think laboratories are probably going to process these things internally a little differently. They have to regarding how training has to be recorded. So I want to make sure that I'm up front with my laboratory that I plan on, you know, choosing you as an credit accredited laboratory to do these studies, and I want to make sure that I get the DOC and that I'm submitting under the ASCA accreditation for you all. I think that'll be from commercial positioning where I'm going to be talking to customers about how they ask for our testing. I think that'll be a key thing as well. Let your laboratory know you fully expect to have the programs processed under that accreditation. Now, the other thing I think we failed to amend is there will be some exceptions as far as types of devices. And I don't have that list in front of me. I know absorbable devices was one of them, but there will be some exceptions of devices where the FDA has said, you can use it for all these things, but this subset, we're going to need to see the full data. This will not qualify for this type of program. I don't know, either of you have that in front of you. I didn't plan for this, sorry, but I remembered we probably should talk about it. <laughs> I have it. Excellent. In-situ
2: curing devices, liquids, creams, gels, hydrogels, or anything containing nanomaterials. So kind of the stuff that you would expect that because they are complex in how you treat them. You can't yeah. typically cut them up and throw them into a vial and add saline to them to get the extract. So I think it's obvious which ones are not going to fit in, but it is very clear. It is crystal clear in the documents. Those those don't count.
0: Yeah, great. So if you have those, sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Not us. It was them. It's not me. It's you. (laughs) I think those are great things that we need to remember as we go along as well. Anything else we think we need to cover regarding the program? Oh, the big pink elephant in the room. No. Chemical characterization testing does not qualify. (laughs) Because I think we're going to get lots of questions about that. And that was clearly not part of the scope of this document we are talking about these specific biocompatibility testing programs only. So that one is the big question I'm sure that we're going to get. And I would say that one's very 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 far from happening at this moment with the FDA. I don't think it can. It's not it my can either. Sense.
2: You just can't boil down the data to a couple of points like right. done with some of these other studies. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that would be yeah. It's, it's...
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good number. Moving on.
0: <laughs> Moving on. Report issued. It's fine. Oh, sure. That looks good. 500 peaks. No problem. I'm sure they're all great. <laughs> all right. Well, I did not prep, nor did I ask any of you to, who to prep for Two Truths and a Lie. So I think it's my lack of planning for this episode. So we're letting everybody off the hook on Two Truths and a Lie. Unless you happen to prepare one, Dawn.
1: I did not. I did. Okay. Because (laughs) none of us are new to the game. So I figured. That's
0: true. We're all repeat (laughs) players. We've already tortured Lisa with that one once. So, (laughs) all right. Well, Lisa, thank you again for joining us. As always, it's always fun to talk with you. And Don, I think we've got another episode in the books.
1: We do. We do. We will forge ahead.
0: We've made it a year. We keep putting off our best of the first year episode for more important topics. So eventually, we're going to get to that best of the first year episode that we're planning on. But we have been here a year. So happy yeah. anniversary, Don. <laughs> woo <Woo-hoo. laughs>
1: We're to all do right. an anniversary episode. It'd take more work than all the episodes combined. So
0: Right, uh, yeah, because we don't really plan well. Yeah. So anyway, reminder for y'all, if you want to read the blog post and get a direct link to the FDA documents, you can go to com slash ASCA, that's A-S-C-A, and you can find a link right there directly to the document. So thanks, everyone. Have a happy day. All right, take care. Bye, thank you. Bye.
2: Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Biocompatibility, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast store. For free resources and material, remember to visit www.namsa.com/resources/podcast.